0: This week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Usually when we talk about fraud, the ones committing the crime of fraud are individuals, or maybe it's within organized crime. But this week, especially after Sam Bankman-Fried was found guilty of committing fraud within FTX, I thought it would be a good idea to talk to someone who has dedicated most of their career on corporate fraud. So I'm really happy to have Jason T. Brown as my guest today. As he'll share in just a couple minutes, Jason spent almost 10 years with the FBI as both a special agent and a legal advisor. And then in 2013, he founded his law firm, Brown LLC out of Jersey City, New Jersey, to help people within the U.S. navigate the sometimes confusing and often stressful journey of becoming a whistleblower. Some of the topics that we will talk about on today's episode will include what actually qualifies someone to be considered a whistleblower, as well as why whistleblowers are important in rooting out corporate fraud, but also in preventing it some probably surprising examples of corporate wrongdoings that would warrant a whistleblower coming forward. And I'll also share the incentives that the U.S. government provides whistleblowers in these cases to make coming forward a little less stressful. I really think that this conversation will be one that you'll want to take a few notes from. It's that good. So now I hope you enjoy listening in on a recent conversation I had with Jason T. Brown, founder and chief litigator at Brown LLC. Welcome back to Fraudology. I am really excited to have Jason T. Brown with me today. We got to know each other a little bit uh, over LinkedIn, and I thought this is someone that my listeners will want to learn from. I certainly want to, and we've tried to purposely not have the majority of this conversation so I can learn along with you. So Jason, thank you so much for joining me on Fraudology.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much for having me here today.
0: Well, I think we're just going to dive in because there's so much to learn from you. Uh, but I want to start because you've had a really impressive career. And before we dive into you know the topic that your career is primarily centered around now, uh, I'd love for you to share a bit about yourself, like your career trajectory, some of your biggest accomplishments or claims to fame, and why you've landed where you are. So, you know, just a couple of light, quick things. <laughs>
1: (laughs) Growing up, I was always wanted to go into the FBI. Uh, My favorite show was actually not about an FBI agent, but about Lieutenant Columbo. And Columbo would go after the most sophisticated, complicated criminals and become industrious and figure out a way to defeat them. And that was always very enticing to me. But I also had a physical component to me. I was a tennis pro. I wanted to do something not just behind a desk and solve crimes that way. So the FBI was my dream career. I had the honor and privilege of serving the country in the Department of Justice as a special agent and and legal advisor with the FBI. And I did tackle some pretty sophisticated criminal enterprises. I also had the fortune or misfortune of being involved in some of the most profound investigations of my era, whether it was the 9-11 situation, anthrax investigation, Daniel Pearl kidnapping, Those were all cases I had worked on. When I left the Bureau, I decided to start my own law firm. We now presently have 20 people, and a good portion of the firm is dedicated to still seamlessly interfacing with the Department of Justice, routing out fraud by using the various statutes and mechanisms there are available to us to combat and end and expose systemic fraud.
0: Wow. Yeah. So we are, yeah, I think you are in good company with all the fraudologists that are listening, a sense of justice and wanting to solve those difficult cases and and kind of the thrill of the hunt. Just one quick question on one of the cases that you mentioned. I'm not as familiar with the Daniel Pearl uh, kidnapping. What was kind of the Cliff's Notes version or the high level of that case?
1: He was, the public account was, he was a Wall Street Journal reporter that was in the Middle East and he was abducted. And unfortunately, that just did not end well.
0: Ah, that's, whew, that's got to be tough. But the, other, I mean, all the cases that you worked, whether they were in the headlines or not, I mean, I think that obviously important that people, you know, not only investigate them to find who is responsible, but also to find how those things can be prevented
1: going forward. Exactly. I mean, when you retroactively do the postmortem to understand what happened why it happened, and what were the inflection points that could have prevented it? I mean, big brother is everywhere. Technology keeps increasing its surveillance of individuals. People have their respective opinions about that, but there's no at all substitute. For human intelligence, individuals who are in a position to know always need to step forward with relevant information in the right way to prevent tragedies from happening in the government uh, sector against civilians and things along those lines. But also in what we do now, which is in combating fraud, because there's a lot of people who understand, have information that they're exposed to, either intuitively think it might be wrong or explicitly know it's wrong but don't know who to turn to, how to turn to it, and what the potential consequences and upsides are to to them. And that's why firms like ours are are dedicated to educating individuals who are potential whistleblowers about the pros and cons of blowing the whistle, about whether or not there's actually a navigable path to succeed, and whether or not the uh, potential benefit outweighs the risks.
0: Such a good through line and such a good transition too. Um, what types of you know clients are you working with in whistleblower cases or what types of cases are you working on? Um, and of all the areas of law you could have gone into after being in the FBI, why whistleblower law? Uh,
1: whistleblower law was just a natural fit because uh, a large portion of it, there's a statute that your listeners may not be very familiar with. It. It's called the False Claims Act. And it addresses when the government is defrauded, and it provides a mechanism through something called the ketam process. And ketam is a fancy Latin term for he who brings a case on behalf of the king as well as himself. And what you do is vicariously. If, for example, if somebody knows that there's systemic Medicare fraud, because there, oh, every year is estimated there's hundreds of billions of dollars of Medicare fraud, and they say, okay this healthcare provider is upcoding where this year it should have been entitled to 10 million, but in fact they billed for 20 million. Well, the whistleblower could receive under the statute credit for the money that the government recovers. And so it's not just that they're going to have protection from retaliation, but they also could receive up to 30% of what the government recovers in those circumstances. So that's just one statute in the last decade where billions have gone to whistleblowers. But I don't want to keep throwing big numbers in everybody's direction because there's a lot more than just the economic incentive that goes on with these types of cases. Uh, people need to do what's right for that sake. People with noble hearts, good things tend to happen. People who, go and just, who are as greedy as the evildoer who's committing the act, oftentimes there's bad results that occur. So you have to really think through what you're doing and why you're doing. But False Claims Act, huge. Uh, And again, every year, billions and billions are recovered. But there's a wave of other statutes in which whistleblowers are entitled to a portion of what the government recovers. And in recent years, the biggest ones have been the SEC whistleblower uh, statutes, CFTC whistleblower, the Commodities Futures uh, whistleblower statutes, like if there's gold or some other uh, commodity. Interesting enough, there is a current, uh, I would say, turf war between those two agencies. The SEC and CFTC are battling it out about regulation, authority over the crypto space. With that emerging... (laughs) I wondered. (laughs) And each head of the agency is... uh, claiming that they have jurisdictional authority. So uh, there's quite a bit of activity with a lot of these implosions, whether it's FTX, Celsius, things along those lines. And just to tie it all up, really, what we've seen over the last five years, almost unprecedented, where depositors in companies like FTX have lost tens and hundreds of billions of dollars. And had there been an individual with courage and fortitude to come forward earlier and blow the whistle in the right manner, potentially they could have stopped some life altering events happening to people. Cause a lot of people, yeah, in their mind, they thought they were getting rich. They, you know, they thought they're becoming Bitcoin millionaires and they deposited it all with FTX and say, or Celsius and say, Hey, I'm getting 20% interest. And back in the day when uh, there's a show called fight back with David Horace, I think. And he said, if something seems too good to be true, it generally is, uh, so people need to be on guard. They need to think. But going back to what we're talking about, you, know, you had to believe at certain points when people went home and looked at themselves in the mirror at the end of the day, they, they had to say, what we're doing is not right. This is just a Ponzi scheme. We can't take these people's money to fund our lavish lifestyle. And I'm looking for a way out. And how do I get out of this? And, you know, the government is your friend. Well, the government's your friend until the end. And it's almost of a joke that I say is particularly if you have culpability, you're gonna to wanna to understand what your exposure is before interfacing with the government. And that's why it's great to have a buffer with a seasoned whistleblower law firm that can explain to you whether or not it makes sense to blow the whistle, whether or not you have a lot of liability personally for the conduct that you've witnessed and or mm-hmm. profited from. And firms that have been through it in different permutations can guide you, hopefully in the right direction to let you know, number one, your exposure, and number two, whether it's worth going forward or not.
0: That's such a good point that, you know, I I know that there were people within compliance that, You know, worked at FTX, for example. I know that there are some people within compliance that work for crypto companies that listen to this podcast, or that did work for crypto companies that are no longer, or they get rid of the compliance department fairly soon. On which, you know, should probably be some red flags, but uh, that's not always disclosed publicly, especially for a private company. So sometimes I'm I'm privy to a fair amount of information where. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. But you know, being the the fraud therapist, as some people have called me doesn't mean that I get you know that I have any authority to say, Okay, well, this is what you should do, or this is what you can do, because I, I don't know. And so that was one of the reasons I wanted, you know, to have you on the other is you're fighting fraud in a in a unique way. Because while we're fighting fraud, that are often caused by individuals or organized crime, you're fighting fraud that's happening by companies. And a lot of times, those companies look so legitimate from the outside. I mean FTX, I mean well, I think there were several of us that were like, how are they able to afford buying, you know, a sports stadium and all these other things, you know, with with the small percentage that they're supposed to only be taking. But how do you look at that and how does somebody know, you know, if what their company is doing is is against the law or just kind of a little shady?
1: It's tricky sometimes to know because some companies like to walk the, the gray line instead of trying to always be pure and do what's right. And we do receive a lot of calls from people in compliance, which is very interesting because compliance has a function that oftentimes may be a, a quasi, if not explicit legal function. And the company may be entitled to some degrees of privilege, but that privilege may evaporate if it's an outright crime. And so, the government is interested in potentially hearing from individuals who have information, but they're not interested in destroying the company's right to have a privilege. So, there will be the government if they believe an informant slash whistleblower has information. They may initially use a tank team to decide whether or not the information is information that they are entitled to have access to. Also, before that happens internally at our firm, we may assign just one exclusive attorney to do the intake, and then that way we understand whether or not what information, if anything, could be broadcast to the entirety of our whistleblower nucleus to go forward with that type of case. Now, I have to believe that most companies have a lot, a lot of good people in them. And I do believe that even though companies are for profit, there are people that want to do the right thing at the end of the day. But there's little cabals within those companies sometimes that all of a sudden it becomes a little hotbed culture of corruption. And once they start doing it, they think, well, yeah. And I'll go back to the Medicare example where we've seen in the past, the evolution of a sprawling scam starts off simple where one division in a healthcare practice goes, you know, I'm sick and getting denials on this one code we're billing for. We're legitimately doing this type of work. Let me put in for a separate code. And then all of a sudden they get paid on that separate code. They should have been receiving, let's say $100 for procedure. They're receiving $100 procedure with the other code. Well, you're holding your nose. You look at, hey, it's the bureaucracy and they justify that it's not bad. But then all of a sudden they start putting in for $200 for the same procedure. Go, let me catch up to all those years in which I didn't get paid. And then the fraud never stops and it becomes more expansive. And at some point, uh, especially in False Claims Act perspective and in the whistleblower field, it's a really unique area of law because it's not just civil remedies that the government is looking at if they're tackling the case. False Claims Act cases, on average, take three to five years, if not longer. And they go at a glacial pace. And it's because the criminal division looks at the conduct first. And they evaluate whether or not there's individuals who are engaging in conduct that's so egregious that they should go to jail. For example, uh, we've had cases in which doctors have performed surgery that wasn't needed just in order to get kickbacks and other incentives for the sake of the surgery. Outright criminal in nature. We just resolved the case against a genetic company for roughly thirty something million dollars. The company was deliberately delaying the results of cancer testing by over two weeks because if it's something called the 14 day rule, if you bill within your hospital, stay within that 14 days, there's just one bundle of payment. But if you wait till after the 14 days, there's a second bucket of payment that they can recover. So They viewed it in in their side. This is a win-win, they would tell the doctors and physicians. Look, you know, the cancer patients have to wait two more weeks. You get more, we get more, everybody wins. But you know who doesn't win at the end of the day there? If you're waiting on the results of your cancer test, you want it yesterday. You want it the next day. You don't want to wait 15 days just because a company can get additional remuneration. So uh, there's all sorts of frauds. There's all sorts of ways to tackle the frauds. And I think the listeners, it's important to understand If they sense something like that's occurring, uh, and they're worried, another thing people worry about is, hey, I know this is going on, but what if nobody believes me? I can't get access to documents, Uh, my company watches what I download, well, that's when it's important to speak to the experts and individuals that have been through it before. And let me just drop a footnote because some regulatory authorities don't let lawyers call themselves experts. I'm not calling myself an expert necessarily. Uh, it just happens to be a focus of my strong focus of my practice that we do this type of work. But it's good to turn to individuals and law firms that have been through this road before that where they can not just walk you through the logistics of whether or not you have a case or not, but whether or not you can lawfully obtain evidence and if so in what matter.
0: So many good points there. One going back to one of the first points you made as far as, you know, compliance often rolling up to legal, you know, I think there are in some ways that that makes sense, because compliance is trying to follow the laws. And I think that's what I've always thought of. But it just kind of also dawned on me that it's awfully convenient that the people who often know where the bodies are buried are uh, could be covered under attorney client privilege if they report to a lawyer and a legal department, which I hadn't hadn't thought of that before. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, and we've seen that in different litigations along the way where the companies will try to overly broadcast privilege by trying to claim everybody is reporting into this legal unit. And uh, it's ironic is the more zealous they are at trying to expand the group to try to assert a broader privilege, the less they may be entitled to that privilege. So in retrospect, if a court was ever analyzing whether or not company has lost its attorney-client privilege. If there's a tighter bubble or nucleus of individuals, let's say compliance and legal, that have access to the information, well, maybe it is privilege. If it's just legal, perhaps. If it's compliance, but there's no lawyers in compliance, arguable. But if they're including company broadcasts and everybody's on that CC, they may have lost the attorney-client privilege. Uh, somewhere along the way right? and the, the company holds the privilege not individuals and that's a whole other topic as well which i always tell people uh you know a lot of companies do have robust reporting mechanisms and earnestly will try to combat the fraud other companies the compliance hotline is a one way ticket for them to get fired unfortunately and uh, we, people come to us along the way say hey yeah, i thought i did the right thing i blew the whistle next day there were three people in my office forcing me to sign a statement. After I did it, they walked me out of the building and I was done. And the company has its own attorneys. Before you report something, you should at least take the time to speak with somebody who's in your corner. The company will admit the company attorney works for the company. The company's the one who the privilege. An individual who goes to compliance, an individual who reports the legal within the confines of the company, that company attorney may give you some general advice, may give specific advice that's guided by the principal what's best for the company. But at the end of the day, that individual does not represent the person who's reporting the misconduct. So you always need somebody to watch out for your own rights if you're going forth to report something. And just to drop a footnote too, because you mentioned some of your listeners in compliance, there are terrific people in compliance. There's terrific people in legal. Uh, and most of them are. It's just the bad apples, the bad little cabals that you have to watch out for. And sometimes it runs pretty deep into the company uh, or up chain or upstream about what goes on. And to take it full circle, if the illegal conduct is known outside of compliance and oftentimes it is and outside of legal well then there might not be a privilege either uh, w- let me give you a common scam that's going on right now uh, it's a tariff evasion under the customs laws uh, generally the false claims act doesn't address tax fraud but it does for customs when things are dutiable and right now a common scheme is when things are shipped from China there's an extra 25% tariff so they'll they'll spot uh, they'll drop ship to another country just change the box and then ship it to the United States and falsely claim that they've made a major difference to the product in the other country or, or conceal the origin so they evade paying tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on these different tariffs. And that's out there. That's a common scheme. Uh, there's, the amount of schemes that are broadcast across companies in the corporate world and individuals is only limited to their imagination. And thankfully, our ability to defeat them is only limited by our imagination, but we must have access to the information. We say we, not just start firm. Uh, I'm fortunate in life. I've done everything I've ever wanted to do. I'm economically taken care of. God, God bless everything that's happened in the past in my cases. I do this because I love helping. I love fighting for what's right at the end of the day, tackling these sophisticated uh, schemers and trying to defeat them. So uh, individuals who have access to information, who just want to understand, hey, what can we do to fight this, combat this? We're My firm, at least, yes, we are a for-profit firm, but we'll try to call balls and strikes like they are and coach the individual. Yes, this is something that you could move forward with, or no, here's, here's the reasons why I, I don't think you can act on what information that you have.
0: And that's such a valuable service that I know that you and and other lawyers within you know whistleblower law offer free consultations, and I think that's. You know, such a valuable service because I know what it's like personally, as well as you know, for a lot of people that I've talked to over the years to be losing sleep over it and just wanting to know, A, if you're crazy and B, is this legal or is it not? Because back to the example you gave around tariff evasion, that's such a good example. And it kind of leads to the next one we're in just a few minutes that I think will hit close to home for a lot of us. But that's something that you know, I would imagine as yeah, broadcast across the company and because it's broadcast across the company, oh, we ship it now to, you know, this country first before uh, the US so that we evade, you know, so that we don't have to pay. It's not, we're going to use the word evade, but you know, so we don't have to pay those tariffs. It saves us money. And that can sound like a legitimate business decision But especially if lots of other companies are doing within your sector, That seems completely fine and normal. You wouldn't necessarily think that that was illegal or that, you know, if you were to report it, you, you know, could help, you know, get help honestly save your company from getting into even more trouble while it won't seem like that at first. But also, you know, eventually a few years down the road, you know, maybe be able to get a percentage of the money that the government, you know, takes from that organization uh to be able to, you know, fund your retirement or your children's college fund or pay for your therapy for all the, you know, sleepless nights, whatever that is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it is interesting because there we talked earlier about whether it's a gray line or black and white and some companies want to try to thrust it into the gray line area but the example i used where they're drop shipping and they're just changing the box i think objectively nobody would think that's a substantive change to the product and if legal all of a sudden tries to do machinations to paper it up and say yeah this is good it's a substantive change when you change the box this is a substantive change well there's a case in which the company Permanently, was put on probation for conducts very similar to that. So it's not like uh, that there's no consequence. And I don't know, and I haven't seen in this particular area them go after lawyers, but the government does believe garbage in, garbage out. So if if somebody's giving false fact patterns to the legal and compliance team for them to come up and they're saying, you know, it's shipped to the, let me just, for argument's sake, it's shipped from China to the, the Philippines. And we are changing the internal batteries and workings of the the machine or the unit. Well, legal and compliance has a good faith argument to make that, hey, this may qualify as a substantive change. So, yeah, that may not be gray area. That may be, yeah, the company's just right. But if they know you're just changing the box from a white box to a black box or some other cosmetic change that's completely superficial... And then they want to risk their law license by telling the company, yeah, it's worth the risk. They better think more than twice because the company has criminal consequences. And who's the company going to blame when the FBI comes and knock They're going to go say, oh, our lawyers said it was OK. And you're going to be in finger pointing back and forth with uh, your own legal unit. And as a lawyer, when your law law is in the line, you definitely don't want to be in those crossfires between what am I going to do with the company? What am I going to do? Because the... Government thinks it's now criminal, and why the heck did I sign a memo where I kind of, sort of knew, if not explicitly knew, that this was wrong at the time?
0: Yeah, I mean, even as a as an independent consultant, I mean, I pay my professional services insurance regularly because I, you know, as much as I trust my experience and I, I try really hard, you know, I, you just never know, right? But and you never know what somebody can do. But I think at the same time, there's. Those are pretty black and white lines as far as, you know, if you're advising them to, to do this or not. But I can see how someone could try to justify and say, well, changing the box, we can say that's a substantive change. And it'll be a lot cheaper than paying this 25 percent tax. Um, I know there's other, you know, drop shipping, all kinds of things like that. If you're a regular listener of Phrodology, you've heard me talk about spec. Not only does their no code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but Spec's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. Spec lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Spec's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. One of the, you know, similarly within the tech space, uh, I was actually really surprised when when we talked before recording that I mentioned something that's very common. And if I were someone to do this, I don't worry, guys, I won't I won't say any company names on or off the podcast to Jason. Uh, But, you know, I can think of at least 10 companies that have done this before. And actually, there's one that was in the news. And so I'm going to use it because. That's always my my rule for myself is if there's a company in the news that's done it, uh, then I can talk about it and name them. Um, but because they came out and admitted it and they and they remedied it, that I don't think that they could be in any trouble for it. But uh, last year, PayPal announced that they closed for uh, 4.5 million accounts that they had identified were tied to bots opening up accounts on within PayPal. And what it turned out to be is PayPal and Venmo, you know, after Ven- PayPal bought Venmo, someone in marketing got the great idea and all of us can relate to this so well uh, to offer a $10 promo. So anytime anyone opens a new account with PayPal or Venmo, they get $10 credited to their account. Well, some very enterprising fraudsters who honestly weren't even committing credit card fraud or, you know, some identity theft, but it wasn't, you know, hitting anyone's credit report or anything, opened 4.5 million accounts, which was $45 million in these promos. And PayPal came out and publicly disclosed this in their shareholder statement. We identified these 4.5 million accounts and this is, you know, we've now closed them down, canceled them. What we see regularly within tech is because valuations of companies are often based on active number of users or number of accounts. There are people within the organization who instruct the fraud team not to cancel those accounts when they first see them. When you first see an account that's been opened, obviously by a bot within, you know, 2.5 seconds, they've filled out all the paperwork and they've submitted it or, you know, XYZ, there's a lot of things we can do to identify that, you know, these accounts are being opened fraudulently in in other people's names, Uh, do not cancel them. Instead, what you can do is you can cancel their behavior. So if they decide to order an account or, you know, order an item, uh, place an order, book travel, whatever that is, then you can say, no, you can't do that. We aren't going to send you that item. But that account has to stay open so that we can count it towards our valuation. And I can tell you that there are countless tech companies that between 40 and 60% of their numbers of active users and, and accounts are bogus. Because everybody does it, I think I just kind of assumed it was this open secret and it was fine. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, the SEC for publicly traded companies will not stand for that, because what the SEC is charged as a regulatory agency is making sure that the investors are protected and have accurate information. And one of the also besides PayPal, Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo got dinged, I think, for a half a billion dollars. And some of the executives got charged with something uh, similarly along those bogus accounts.
0: Yeah, cause Wells Fargo didn't disclose it before, you know, <laughs> before getting found out, whereas PayPal did. And, and they probably disclosed that for, you know. For these reasons, I honestly didn't, I just applauded them for doing it. You know, wow, look at, and I was so excited because it was the first time I was able to really say, this is an open secret. And I think that was the first post I did on LinkedIn that got over a hundred thousand views. And I didn't even put any thought into posting about it. I just was like, oh, here's an example. and And everyone was like, yes. But so... But you're right. Wells Fargo found out the hard way that if you don't disclose it and cancel those accounts, they can be fined,
1: right? They they could be fined. Uh, The individuals who potentially provide that information about the systemic company practice could be handsomely, incentively rewarded by up to 30% of the recovery there and also stay anonymous, which I can get to in a second as well, because people are always concerned about their identity. But yeah, these open secrets, just because everybody's doing it, doesn't necessarily qualify as a defense. Uh, these dummy accounts, would say, sometimes may start off with benign intentions. Hey, here's $10 if you get somebody to sign up. Fine, it's noble. I won't, say, I won't say noble. I'd probably strike that, but indicate, yeah, that's ways that company may think about how do we grow? How do we expand our client base? But companies are sufficiently unnoticed that they need to have compliance mechanisms in place to monitor them to make sure that these accounts that are actually starting to open up really represent real consumers, real individuals, depending upon the nature of the business. And that kind of dovetails into KYC, knowing your clients, depending upon which business you're in and how you're regulated. Uh, going back to open secrets, yeah, a lot of open secrets are out there, but a lot of open se- secrets can be chopped off. There is an open secret in the financial industry that really... Financial individuals were using back channels to communicate with their clients, and they were using things like WeChat for foreign clients. They're using their personal cell phones uh, as regu- regulated individuals with the destruction of the audit trail. The companies uh, ex- either internally endorsed the practice, explicitly at times endorse the practice, or were aware of the practice and allowed it to happen and the sec has been on a warpath about that type of conduct with that open secret and i think in the last year there's been over two billions in fines levied against these types of companies who have allowed the deliberate destruction of audit trails but in both situations it depends and i guess we should get into at some point what actually qualifies a whistleblower but but for these circumstances if it's sec regulated industry then the individual has the potential to stay anonymous from start to finish with the use of an SEC whistleblower attorney. They can't do it themselves. And it's just built into the program, built into the statute. And a lot of times what we get is people who try to file things themselves and they go one step forward, they file it horrifically, not the right way, not the way the the SEC receives tens of thousands of tips. Uh, They need it. Presented in the most succinct, concise manner that they're used to digesting to take it seriously. But people file with their name and they don't want to use their name. And then all of a sudden, they want to get us involved retroactively. And we try to mop up the situation. And sometimes it's just, quite frankly, not salvageable because uh, somebody represents themselves as a fool for a client. And potentially, you can admit your own culpability in a, in a scam or scandal. So you really need to have some objective purveyor before you go forward with something along those lines and by the way uh, your your listeners can see but i had a full head of hair before i started helping up these uh mopping this up and and now it's it's eroding from some of these complicated situations because i feel bad for some of these people and ernest wanted to do the right thing but they just inextricably prejudice their own case by the way they filed the information to the SEC, CFTC, or other regulatory agencies.
0: Or they—I mean, I, I would think that one of the biggest ways is wanting to be anonymous. But if you're representing yourself and you don't know exactly which documents the other side gets to see or not, that would be one way that you could really tank it, and that be a challenge and and I think we've all heard of horror stories of you know famous individuals or companies that have hired some you know very expensive private investigator or you know other types of of firms to follow people and harass them and all that so that's one of the bigger reasons why anonymity and also protection against retaliation is so important so let's get into uh you know what qualifies someone uh, to be a whistleblower? I think that's really important uh, to kind of check the box on this conversation.
1: There is the colloquial expression about somebody's a whistleblower, and that's generally an individual who's trying to expose illegal or unethical conduct. Now, just because you're disclosing something that's not in conformity with company policy, colloquially, you may think you're a whistleblower but you may be naked of any protection under the law. And really, it's almost the inverse. It is whether or not you can put the fact pattern in a cognizable statutory protection. So there has to be a defined statute protecting the whistleblower. There's no just common law. There's no just even though there's a, a feel-good consensus that we want people to do what's right, there's no law that the courts have evolved themselves that explicitly protects somebody who wants to disclose something. And within the, com- the confines of the whistleblower statutes, there's really two streams. There's a stream of laws that just protect the whistleblower from retaliation. For example, in the state of New Jersey, it's called CIPA, the Conscientious Employee Protection Act. And I'm just using that as one particular whistleblower statute. And if you report something that the company's doing that's illegal, You could potentially, if the company retaliates, harass, you could be entitled to punitive damages, economic losses, double damages, attorney fees, reinstatements, things along those lines. So you have all those statutes that really stridently try to protect the whistleblower from retaliation. In addition, building off of that, there's the economic inducement statutes like the SEC, uh, CFTC, AML, Anti-Money Laundering, False Claims Act, NET. NHTSA, there's a whole bunch of them. And what those also, in addition to protecting the whistleblower from retaliation, those statutes also incentivize the whistleblowers to come forward with information and in turn give them a percentage of any recovery that the government obtains through their information if they are the first to file. So there's always little caveats and wrinkles. Another reason why it's important to to file things in, in a timely manner. Going back to what we've discussed and I'm sure. Sh- Earlier, It shouldn't just be the economic inducement to do these things. You really need to do what's right at the end of the day for you, for the system to work. But they do need to, they found out, incentivize people who are high up to have a real strong economic incentive to come forward with information. That way, the authorities can learn about any systemic misconduct. So those are the different buckets they fall into. And then you start getting more granular deciding, depending upon the content of the information, which trajectory does that particular information go into? And is it actionable at all? Because sometimes it's just not. Sometimes people think it's actionable. And I'll give you a fact pattern. And even though I... I'm asserting that this is not actionable. It may be actionable in different statutes, but not necessarily actionable in any federal statute to give the whistleblower a percentage of whatever the government covers. And one of those is consumer fraud. OK, surprisingly, uh, if the company is just knowingly ripping off consumer, if the company's telling consumers oh, we're charging everybody $10 for the widget, but then actually charges their credit card 15 and they'll say it's a glitch or something like that for 10 years they're doing the glitch, there may be a class action if there's not an arbitration clause or maybe an outsider that can file to try to systemically remedy the, the misconduct. But by, if blowing the whistle to the FTC doesn't necessarily get you anywhere in terms of Number one, potentially protecting yourself unless there's a different statute that you want to invoke. Or number two, getting a piece of whatever the government recovers. So it's important to know and follow what can be done and what can't. And that's why you need to work with not just our firm, but there is a handful of other firms that are very seasoned in this area of law that can give you some solid advice. Yes, this is something that we can work with. Yes, you're protected from retaliation, but no, at the end of the day, you probably don't want to go through the aggravation to get what is most likely going to happen. Well, and
0: I think my my listeners would be disappointed if I didn't say that there is one other way that uh, consumers can, you know, try to right that wrong or that maybe whether consumers care or not what that wrong may be righted. And that is through the chargeback system, uh, through Visa and MasterCard, uh, especially for card not present companies, which, you know, is anything where the credit card isn't Present so that's online tech. That's that's a lot of my listeners. That's what I did <laughs> for so long as a practitioner. So I know those rules very well inside and out. But they aren't necessarily legal rules. They're set by Visa and Mastercard.
1: Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's a great point. I'm not suggesting the consumers without remedy, right? But no, with, with but with these individual arbitration clauses that have class killing portions of it, companies are calcified and emboldened to say, we could just do this. And there really is, if we have to pay a thousand people, they're five bucks back. That's five thousand, but we just made five million from everybody else who was asleep at the switch, who didn't want to fight it, didn't want to spend the the time to fight. Maybe it's not five dollars, maybe it's fifty cents, and they go, you know, I, I'm just it's just just not worth it for me to to tackle this uh, individually by complaining to the credit card company, and they get away with. It. Now it doesn't mean that the authorities wouldn't think that there's criminal consequence at some point for certain conduct. It doesn't mean that if an individual blows the whistle the right way that they wouldn't be protected if they can invoke the appropriate statute. It just means that there's no bigger economic incentive for them to get involved in the spray and put their name behind it if they could avoid or take other routes to report information. And there are generally other routes that we explore with people.
0: Well, and that's oh my brain just went in four different directions. So I'm trying to decide which direction to follow down. But um, you know, I think that. The one other thing I'd want to rule out there too is You know, those of us who are in fraud prevention, it's our job to identify, you know, accounts or um, a lot of times it's more transactions uh, than accounts for, you know, the previously stated reason. It's our job to identify that financial fraud before it happens. And because we are there and because we're doing that job, I think if any victim of credit card theft or identity theft would come to that company or if someone in uh, in a fraud position would say well they aren't you know letting me cancel as many orders as i want to so therefore they're enabling fraud like that wouldn't count either right for the same reasons
1: yeah if the company in earnest is trying to remedy the issues the government will easily pick up on that if, if in fact enough complaints get compiled to one of the Consumer Fraud Protection Bureau, FTC, the different regulatory agencies that are in charge with that. And I think that'll be easy to establish. And it's important for companies to make sure, you know, if it doesn't happen on paper, it didn't exist. So yeah, we've had 20 calls about this. And here's the steps that we've done to, number one, make the consumer right at the end of the day. And number two, to make sure that this stops happening. And where there will be fatigue from the government at some point, is if it continues to happen despite repeated notice to the company. And yeah, companies sometimes are their own labyrinths and mazes. The government itself is its own maze. So they'll appreciate that it may take a couple months, three to six months to get it right.
0: But if it takes years, right. But if
1: it's three to six years, there's going to be a problem and there's going to be accountability at some point if the right people get access to the information.
0: So that reminds me, and I didn't... Uh prep for you with this information before so and i'm not you know mentioning any names so i'm not expecting you to know all the ins and outs of this case i don't even know all the ins and outs but there is uh at least one company that has been public within our industry on the solution provider side so on the vendor side that they work with uh e-commerce companies or you know um other types of companies, you know, infomercials, whatever it is. Um, you know, where the credit card isn't isn't present to try to remedy those those. And they've been publicly uh, sued by the FTC. And I know that there have been some, you know, and I actually haven't commented on this on the podcast for a few different reasons. Um the biggest one that I know it's an active case and, and I know that I know some things behind the scenes, so I don't want to accidentally say something that uh, that isn't public, but it, you know, is or anything else like that, but the one thing i wanted to bring up is you know for companies that can be on the ftc's radar and if the ftc goes to the extent of publicizing that and saying hey like you know cuz there's a lot of companies that the FTC is working with or talking to or providing letters behind the scenes that nobody knows about but when they go to the extent of saying it publicly that probably means where there's smoke there's fire right there wouldn't generally be an issue where the FTC is just throwing it around for the sake of throwing it around
1: the go- the government when they get to the public stage they don't like to be embarrassed and when I was with the Bureau, the United States Attorney's Office had something like a 99.9% conviction rate. So once they brought a case, they were fairly confident that, and that that standard approved was beyond a reasonable doubt. Here with fraud, it's clear and convincing evidence and a 9B or 10B standard, depending upon whether uh, under the federal rules, depending upon whether it's a complaint or a regulatory charge. But yeah, in order for them to go public, Most of the time, they want to feel like they have the smoking gun evidence against the company. And a lot of times there are back channels in which they're trying to work with the company before it becomes public to work things out, to resolve it. And at the end of the day, either go public with it, keep it secret, which is really not in their charter, but they might if they feel like the information was ambiguous or allow the company or if
0: they feel like the company's addressing it, right? Like, oh, okay, you're you took our you read our letter that was private, you addressed it, you stopped doing it. We don't want to tell everyone about it. Like,
1: yeah. If the company wants to be part of the solution and wants to be up front, then they could be part of the ultimate broadcast when there is a a news article from the FTC saying, you know, we confronted company XYZ about something regarding software sales and add-ons that they were auto-debiting consumers for. And after being confronted with the practice, they had indicated they did a comprehensive search, they refunded all the consumers and they've maybe entered into a corporate integrity agreement saying it's never gonna happen again. And it looks better than, hey, we just found them three million, they didn't acknowledge guilt and we'll be monitoring them whether they like it or not for the next 20 years. So and, and for consumer confidence too, I think there's a world of difference between uh, assisting with the government investigation and just strong arming the government investigation. But that's an internal function that the company has to decide once they're privy to the investigation. What's interesting going back to not just the consumer fraud, but the False Claims Act perspective, when those cases are filed for entities that are defrauding the government and in the tech sphere, a lot of times that happens when companies are supposed to be compliant with uh, cybersecurity protocols and just blazing. Blatantly failed to keep those uh, information safeguarded and those safe measures in place. Oh Could no, be- we know it. Because <laughs> we're usually <laughs> the
0: ones that are dealing with the moneti- the monetization of that data that has not been not been se- you know securely stored.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, and that's an interesting area of whistleblower whether or not there actually was a harm or a, w- a breach. Was it that the company just fit, put it called for uh, three virus checking programs and two firewalls, and in fact only kept one, but there was no breach. Government may say that's not really material. There's nothing there. But if ultimately the information was accessed as a result of non with the contract, you could bet the government's going to be interested if that was with the government contract. But going back to the principles, the False Claims Act was one of the rarest lawsuits you can file. because It's filed confidentially under seal. It's a lawsuit against the defendant, but the defendant doesn't know it has been sued yet. And it stays confidentially under seal for many, many years. And also, going back to the theories about an, an amenity, you could potentially file it as a John Doe. You could use a straw plaintiff, potentially. You could use a company or corporation whose express purpose that you formed it for is to file that lawsuit. So you have additional shields of potential anonymity with those types of cases. And further, if I could just talk about that process too, the, an, a pivot point in a False Claims Act case is you've alleged the government's been defrauded X amount of money. Government investigates, then they make a decision. Is the government going to intervene and handle it from start to finish, or, or are they going to decline? If they intervene, just from pure numbers perspective, the average settlement's around $13 million, but the relator share, the plaintiff share, goes down to 25%. If they don't intervene if you decide to go forward if the individual decides to go forward the value is generally three million but that's been skewed because uh, for this year because there is a record non-intervened resolution i think that was for 500 or 600 million dollars this year What the government wasn't involved didn't think that they was worth the government's time but ultimately they they obtained this amazing amazing result but if the average put out the outliers around three million but the Whistleblower get up to 30%, a little slightly higher percentage. But what also happens here is let's say you file it as a John Doe or Jane Doe or ABC court case. If the government decides not to intervene, you can walk away. You could just say, I'm not serving the defendant. I'm just dismissing the case and stepping away from it. So that's another level say, okay, the government wasn't interested, maybe I don't want to get involved in the litigation beyond here. Let me just walk away at this point. The company or whomever was sued still has other mechanisms to try to find out and out the individual, although I've never seen it successfully be done at that crossroads, but th- there are added levels of security there. So and ways to proceed to protect people's identities in these types of litigation.
0: Well, and I just think that's such a good point that the government isn't going to go forward on everything. It certainly isn't going to publicize anything unless, you know, there's, they have pretty solid evidence. And that was just something I thought of as you were talking that I wanted to throw in because there's definitely, you know, some, um, efforts being done to say, oh no, we didn't do anything wrong. They just put our name out there and it's like, "Ah, actually that may not be the case. So, um, A couple other things I just wanted to kind of run through um, as we start to wrap up, though I knew this could be, you know, such a longer conversation. The False Claims Act that you've talked about so much, especially, you know, with regards to the SEC, I mean, obviously that's within the US, but, you know, you mentioned that that's for public companies. What about the companies that are private, that have private investors that are startups, Um, you know, Silicon Valley or, you know, elsewhere? Are there protections, you know, are there rules for companies to not be over? Inflating or lying to their investors in the same way? Or and are there similar rules for whistleblowers, or is it a different scenario?
1: There are rules and regulations in place, but then there's jurisdictional challenges about how you invoke the SEC. So if it's a case in which a company doesn't have investors is closely held and let's say doing the dummy account scheme, it's hard pressed for the SEC to get involved. Now Second level is if the company is inducing private cash to flow to it through investors, and its prospectus says we have 10 million customers when in fact it only has 100 thousand. Well, there's a reg, there is an investment brochure that customers rely on to their detriment. So they had a fiduciary duty to be honest to the investors. So technically, the SEC could potentially invoke jurisdiction and act upon that information because that's an investment instrument that they're circulating.
0: Hmm. All right, yeah, I was just curious, you know, hypothetically and all, but I wanted to make sure that you know we're encompassing everyone. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, you mentioned you know know your clients or know your customers uh, regulations, and that's uh, something that. A lot of my listeners are very familiar with, and that is part of their job. If they are, you know, if they work for a fintech, uh, especially a consumer, you know, focused fintech like you know credit lending or investments or that type of thing, or if they, you know, even now work for a marketplace because there's starting to be more crackdowns on uh, any type of organization that has buyers and sellers and you know a platform that is hosting both of those entities. Uh, But there's a lot of companies. Companies were, we're unregulated. I mean, I've been on the e-commerce side for almost 20 years and really don't have to worry about regulations for better and for worse. Um, and so I didn't know if you had any uh, insight on, you know, just kind of if there isn't KYC rules in place is there still an obligation to those types of companies to have verification of who their customers are or is it strictly to cover their own in case you know of financial fraud and stolen payment methods where they would be responsible for you know the amount that is stolen on a victim's credit card well
1: it's a couple things if the company's acting in a fiduciary capacity So they're allowing somebody to open up accounts as a depositor, Uh, whether it's crypto, whether it's cash, whether it's gold. Then you you get involved in not just they have an obligation under anti-money laundering laws and KYC to actually know the client. If it's just a customer base. For, there may be other obligations, but the obligations aren't as strident as if somebody used a fiduciary. And the anti-money laundering statute, by the way, was reworked a couple of years ago to put more teeth in it because there has not been a successful whistleblower yet in that statute. But in the AML, in the, in the revamped whistleblower program, that actually is going to entitle the whistleblowers to a percentage of whatever the recovery is. But that knowing from dealing with the agency, they are looking to make a very expensive example out of their first real big case here. And one, a couple prohibitions is the sanction list. So there's certain countries and oligarchs that are not supposed to be using U.S. banking. If they're shielding their true identity to access U.S. banks and somebody's got the goods on that, that money will be seized. And most likely an individual inf- side information about that will Uh, Obtain a significant award for something along those lines. Uh, Also, just to show you uh, interesting KYCs, let's say uh, someone comes to the bank. One of the more seasonal or topical things in recent years is marijuana dispensaries. But how do they do business? Because it's illegal for them to use the federal banks. Federal, yeah. So if Mary Jane Corporation tries to open up its company using the banks, they go, what do you do? And they go, oh, my girlfriend's named Mary Jane, but she didn't come. There's no papers. And the person comes into the branch. And, and I'm not editorializing for or against marijuana. Or went or that. I'm just spelling out the way, way it is. And they didn't do proper KYC. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, all the marijuana companies flock to that one branch or that one bank. Uh, I expect there to be also AML whistleblowers along those lines as well.
0: Well, we certainly didn't intend for this to be, you know, an advertisement for how my listeners can get a side hustle, but... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: and i'm and i'm hope that they're laughing at that but i think that it's you know, really important to know for those of us who do have a an extra dose of a sense of justice and who you know in all fairness it's i really appreciate that you said it you, that no one should be doing this just for the compensation because it is several years of a process and you are having to you know potentially wrestle with not ratting out your coworkers and your and your company but bringing their you know their conduct to light but on the flip side just like you said at the very beginning and kind of bringing it full circle there are so many examples of Situations where, gosh, if there was a whistleblower, none of this would have happened, right? We wouldn't have had all this financial demise. The most of the rules around AML, KYC, sanctions, all of these other things that you've been talking about—you know, false claims—you know, it's trying to ensure that people are giving true claims, right? It's it's trying to ensure that people are doing the right thing because if they do the wrong thing, there will be consequences. And I think that's something that I just kind of wanted to, you know, wrap it all up with that at the end of the day, you know, you're fighting corporations that are committing fraud for better and for worse. And sure, they maybe they can try to, you know, have the ends justify the means, which I'm sure happens a fair amount. But at the end of the day, the majority of those rules are in place to try to prevent the next FTX, the next wire card, the next, you know, fill in the blank here. The
1: next, I mean, those are economic things. And the next catastrophe here in the United States, the next uh, you know, s- stop a bomb from going off by, by calling the authorities in a prompt and maybe confidential manner. But going back to what we talked about, it's meant to try to preserve the integrity of the system. We said Big Brother can't be everywhere, even though it feels like that all the time. It really needs earnest individuals to come forth in the right manner and say the things the right way. That aside, I'm not trying uh, to entice anybody to call me. I'm I'm here because I generally love talking about this subject matter and hope to illuminate and turn on the light for some people to say, hey, there are outlet valves that they can pursue. But at the end of the day, uh, one of my friends who was a judge used to say, he goes, how would you feel at the end of the day about your conduct? If your grandma was over your shoulder watching you do what you were doing, can you look at her from behind and then look in the eyes and say, yeah, grandma, we're we're defrauding all these people out of millions. Don't worry about it. Or are you going to feel terrible at the end of the day? So think about that. Think, think about, uh, it may feel suffocating if an individual is privy to something and things get better, especially if you talk to the right people, not just the therapists, but talk to people who have been through it before, who in earnest will work with you to try to figure out some route to, to help the system and help yourself along the way, or outright tell you you're just wrong. Don't worry about it. Your fears are are unfounded. That that actually is legitimate for the following reasons. And instead of going to bed for weeks at a time, or maybe not going to bed and can't sleep and watching your iPad all night, you, you should really think about what your outlet valves are to make sure that you could discuss with somebody, because it, it could be cathartic to understand what your rights and our obligations are. And the Talk with somebody about your upsides and downsides.
0: A hundred percent. And I think, you know, honestly, I hope that that should anyone contact you or or a similar firm and you know, from listening to this on the podcast, that, you know, all if not, you know, or most, if not all, of them are told, you know what, like that's unfounded. Um, but I think that, you know, those of us that are committed to rooting out fraud on the consumer level or, you know, with organized crime and all of that, that we see those funds going to all kinds of you know, really horrific things as well. We care about it on all levels, right? You can't just care about it on one and not the other. And so that's why I thought it would be really interesting for sure and worthwhile to have you come on the podcast and, and talk about this type of fraud because A, people you know the hundreds of people listen to this podcast um, definitely if not sometimes over thousands you know if if not just they're fascinated by all the different types of fraud there are and and maybe you know from a career trajectory perspective uh, but also because you know we all ultimately want to see the right thing happen. And sometimes that means having to take courage and, you know, speak up when it's uncomfortable.
1: I mean, sometimes there is the difficult decision that you have to wrestle with, but you have to make it. And then it's like a splinter. It's there. You know it's gonna hurt. It's probably gonna hurt when you pull it, but after it's out, it feels so much better
0: such such a good analogy and I do think that it's great to know that you know at least you know within the US and I know that uh, any of our listeners outside the US will need to you know do their own own research at this point but um you know it, it's it's good to know that there are things that can do to find out right if it's a splinter or not um and if and if you know to know that the anonymity will be there
1: Yeah, it's not always guaranteed, but if you do the route in the right way, you can try to augment your ability to stay anonymous from start to finish with the different programs. It depends what program you pursue. And you can go over what your options are, what your parachute is, what the timing of things are, all these different dynamics where if if somebody's been through it before, they can guide you. And one of the other things I don't know if I mentioned, it's not like I'm asking if they work with my firm, somebody to do something that I haven't done myself. Because when I was with the FBI, I also ran and participated in undercover activities. So I know what it's like to be the whistleblower, to be the one where it, you you may have a false sense that everybody's looking at you, even though they don't know that the whistle's been blown. Like everybody knows I'm an FBI guy. They, they, they can't possibly think that the, I'm giving out free, all this free contraband for just... You know, whatever. So, yeah, people think that. But then I've done it. Our company, at least, has counseled many of individuals. And there's a lot of great firms out there. I won't say a lot, a handful of great firms that have significant accomplishments in this space, because I do think this is not an area of law that a mom and pop attorney you really should go to. You really need to look. And I'm not necessarily advocating for our firm although we have tremendous background, but look for a firm that actually has consistent results in this space or else they won't be able to really guide you in the way that you deserve to be guided. And by the way, I've really enjoyed speaking here today. And I I think if there are questions, I love just fielding questions. And if I don't know the answer, you know, I don't know the answer to everything. We will find out the best that we can what the answer should be to that question.
0: Well, I appreciate it so much. And I will uh, put a link to your profile as well as to your website in the show notes so people can reach out to you directly if they have questions. Uh, The other option is, you know, reaching out to me with questions uh, that if they can be asked anonymously of you, I I think I can hopefully ask you to come back and answer those on the podcast, you know, without all of the details. So those are sometimes harder, but if someone just has a generic question they want to ask publicly, I am always a big believer that if one person takes the time to reach out and ask a question, uh, chances are there's a lot of people that have it. Um, But yeah, I, I'm such a proponent of just sharing information and the value of that. And I do think that you've really demonstrated in this last hour, just how complex these laws are, but also how navigatable they are when you know what you're doing. And I think all of us can appreciate that as experts in our own field. And I know you're not claiming to be an expert. I am saying that. Uh, And I also know you're not giving anyone, uh, you know, specific legal advice at all. We're just having a conversation about what you do for work. So, uh, Thank you again, Jason, so much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and uh, hope that we can stay in touch.
1: Excellent. I look forward to it. Thank you very much as well.